The Guardian. Welcome back to the Age of Extinction Takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. And I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. We work on the Age of Extinction project, which looks at catastrophic biodiversity loss and things we can do to tackle it. If you haven't already, check out part one of our takeover, where Phoebe looks at the world of eel trafficking and how people are working to recover European eel populations. This episode, we're still talking about wildlife trafficking, but we're switching kingdoms. There's a certain blindness when it comes to plants and trafficking, but ignoring them is a mistake because many plants are traded illegally. And we're not going to talk about just any plant. We're talking about one that has captured the human imagination for centuries. Orchids. The orchid world is full of strange behaviours and secrecy. Making this episode, people turned down interviews, turned down our requests to view at their orchid sites, and we discovered a whole mythology about orchids here in the UK. There is even a Midsummer Murders episode about orchid collectors. So Patrick, amid all this secrecy, where does this story start? I'm taking you on a visit to a tropical rainforest here in London. It's a miserable day outside, but where I'm standing, it's almost uncomfortably warm. I'm in a glass house at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, with my guide, Mike Fay. And as you can see now, we're walking through a, an area with some tropical ferns, and my glasses have steamed up <laughs> as a result of the high humidity. <laughs> the climate in each of these rooms is carefully controlled, because these plants are very particular about their care, including orchids, Mike's favourite. He's a senior research leader at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew, but also the co-chair of the Orchid Specialist Group for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. What do you think orchids appeal to about humans, this obsession that so many people seem to have with them? Well, I think it is that sort of, well, if you like, almost kinkiness of orchids. You know, they, they don't have a normal lifestyle. They indulge in strange pollination routines they these strange pollination routines include sometimes releasing the scent of pheromones these orchids trick a male insect into attempting to physically mate with them and removing their pollen in the process but their pollination routines are diverse just like orchids themselves approximately 28,000 species of orchids exist and they grow in almost every environment from alps to sand dunes to tropical forests Some grow on the ground, some on tree trunks, but the numbers in the wild are declining. By March this year, the IUCN had assessed more than 1,700 species of orchids. Of these, 400 are endangered, 204 are critically endangered, and five are now extinct. The orchids we're looking at are among the most interesting flowers I've ever seen. Some are the size of shrubs, with large colourful flowers that dominate corners of the conservatory. Others are tiny, with delicate spindly petals that are hard to distinguish from their foliage. It's easy to see why they're so seductive, causing orchid delirium in the Victorian era. Much like tulip mania in the Netherlands, rich orchid fanatics built collections of the plants from around the world. Unfortunately, many of these plants died in the process and there are reports of people in the 19th century having a whole long series of people employed local people who were carrying sacks of orchids on their backs 
in the hope that one or two of these plants might survive when they were brought back to, to England. And Kew was part of that process, and that's something which has changed very dramatically. We now don't go in and strip out large numbers of plants, but that was how th things were done in those days. The orchids Mike and I see only scratch the surface of those kept here at Kew. But a small portion of these rare orchids are on display in a glass case in front of us. Behind these, we have a sort of mix, if you like, of this sort of rotating display of things that are really at their prime. They're behind this case to protect them, partially from accidental damage because they're so delicate, but also because even though it's no longer the era of orchid delirium, orchids can make people do extreme things. Mike says more than two decades ago, someone stole a lady slipper orchid from Q along with some other plants. Q security has evolved, and so has international orchid law. All orchids require very specific documentation to cross international borders. So as a scientist working on orchids, if I want to work on orchids from somewhere else and I want samples, I'm waiting for a parcel to arrive from Russia as we speak. My colleague in Russia had to apply for permits to export it from Russia. I had to apply for permits to import it into Britain and if those permits aren't there and if they haven't been stamped on exit from Russia and entrance into Britain then the plant material is illegal. And this is what I want to explore more in this episode. How some people are choosing to ignore these laws that Mike is following and move orchids illegally across borders and what this means for the plants and ecosystems they take them from. About half the species of orchids are threatened with extinction. So orchids are somewhat more threatened than plants in general. Primarily because of humanity's, I guess, attraction to them. Habitat destruction, land use change, illegal collection, unsustainable collection for medicine, for food, for horticulture. Patrick, I find trafficked orchids so fascinating because I see orchids every week in the supermarket and they're being sold for less than a tenner. Those are hybrid orchids grown in nurseries. You don't need a permit to sell them internationally. Orchids that are trafficked are wild orchids. These are the ones people can become particularly obsessed with. Sometimes for their ornamental beauty, sometimes for medicine, sometimes even for food. Vanilla is an orchid, for example. I learned that making this podcast. To understand that community, I found someone who's been researching it for years. My name's Amy Hinsley. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford, and I'm also the co-chair of the IUCN Orchid Specialist Group, which is a group of people working on orchid conservation. I first became interested in orchids because of people's reaction to them. The way they make people behave is just such an interesting thing to study and to try to understand. There's a darker side to this obsession. When did you first realise there was a problem with orchid trafficking? So I started talking to people in the orchid community, so orchid hobbyists, professional orchid growers, people who organise orchid shows, orchid judges. It's a whole world. And so I, I kind of got into that world and started talking to people. And although, like I said, most, most people are, they do care about conservation and they only grow legal plants, you do still get some people who will grow illegal plants and will go out looking for them. And when I started realising that it was probably a big problem was when just chatting to people casually and they knew that I was researching this and they would just be completely open about how they 
got illegal wild plants, how they smuggled them themselves across borders or how they bought them online or how they were getting people to post plants to various places because they knew there'd be no customs checks on them. And it was that openness, just the ease of which people would talk about it, that made me realise that it might be a bit bit bigger and a bit more widespread than, um, than we previously thought. Exactly how widespread is very difficult to tell, as with all illegal trades. And enforcement is challenging. Officials may not be able to recognise the orchid species they're looking at. Where is the buying and selling taking place for orchids? It really depends on the the market. So you can have domestic orchid trade where people are selling orchids that they've just collected from the forest, for example, maybe on a street market or in a shop. But you can also get this international trade. So often the people selling will be in countries that are very orchid rich, like Indonesia, like lots of countries in Southeast Asia, in China, in Latin America, there are lots of orchids there. And the collectors that I worked with were often in in Europe, in America, in Australia, in Japan. And so these orchids will be sold. Either people will go to these countries and buy them or they'll be sold online. And the Internet is now such a big marketplace for orchids. The body that makes the rules around the international wildlife trade is called CITES, which we're definitely going to stick to throughout this podcast. It stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. This doesn't apply to movement within countries where the laws vary widely. And people will be buying illegally rather than legally in some cases because potentially there isn't a legal source. If a new species is discovered, it takes often several years to get a legal supply of those plants. And some people might want them a lot sooner than that because rarity is so important for people. Another reason that people also might trade illegally is that they don't agree with the rules that bans international orchid trade. So I've spoken to people who have said, I don't agree with CITES. I don't think that our hobby should be controlled in this way. It's not a conservation threat. We're the ones who are saving these orchids. So I trade illegally. I go to countries and I bring orchids back without permits because I know better than the people who are making the rules. To understand why and how people traffic orchids, we put out a request on a public orchid forum, asking if any orchid traffickers would do an interview with us where they remain anonymous. The backlash to the request was swift, but many people took the time to complain about CITES and accused it of failing to protect orchids. I mean, they often talk about, you know, rampant deforestation. So you see it on TV and you see all the trees being felled in places where orchids are growing. Orchids, a lot of them are epiphytes. They grow on trees. So people will say, you know, we see the habitat being destroyed and we're saving them. We're the only ones who have these species in our greenhouses and we're the only ones who can look after them well. So often there's not shame around it. Sometimes there is, but often people are quite proud of it. They can justify it when they talk about it, to themselves at least. Is this a particularly lucrative trade? I mean, how much have you seen a wild orchid go for? It sort of varies. I've seen, you know, several thousand pounds for one plant. You also see them going, though, so wild orchids of... CITES Appendix 1, which is the strictest rules for orchid trade, so the ones where you absolutely cannot trade wild orchids. You see CITES Appendix 1 orchids going for, you know, three or five US dollars. So there's really no kind of price that people follow. It's really just, I think, dependent on how many plants they have, who they're selling to and and everything like that. 
how is this trade contributing to the decline of, of orchids around the world? Is, are we seeing extinctions regularly every year? The impact of the trade on wild populations is really difficult to find out often. It's difficult to know because we often don't have good information about the species in the wild, about where it's found, for example. And we also often don't know how how much has been collected, who's collecting it. We just don't have the sort of baseline information to know. We do know of some examples of really dramatic collections of orchids to near extinction. So there was an example in Vietnam a few years ago of a species called Paphiopedalum tanii. And that species was discovered. And I think within a few days, there were collectors there who were harvesting it from the wild in the places where it had been reported. So when you describe a new species to science, you will give information about its habitat and sometimes the location where you found it. And you'll give a photograph of it as well. So it's kind of a perfect little sheet for these <laughs> for people to print out and just take with them and go and find these wild populations. So people will uh, go and they'll collect these straight away. And in the case of Paphiopelum chanii, that's what happened. And within six months of it being described as a new species, it was collected to near extinction. They said 99.5%, I think, of all known plants had gone from the wild. But that's also a really good example of how we just don't know enough about these species because I think a couple of years later they found a whole new population of that species. Amy says once you know what to look for, it's not hard to find this online. Orchid activity that's either likely to be illegal or blatantly illegal. The internet is a whole world of people selling orchids or showing them off on social media. There are even unboxing videos where orchid influencers will show off their recently received shipments. I asked Amy if she could find some and share them with us. Right, let's do an unboxing from the orchid influencers. Is that is that the the YouTube link? Yes, it is. This is somebody with a fair amount of subscribers who has a, a very specific orchid youtube channel it's an unboxing video and in the comments people saying look how beautiful these orchids are good luck with your new green pets i'd like to know the website of the seller yeah and i think this one i think these orchids are clearly wild but what i think is interesting about this one is one of the comments right down at the bottom it says someone's posted and said hey are these wild orchids this isn't okay wild orchids are threatened you shouldn't be doing this and the person who posted the video replies to that and says i don't know where they're from but I'm trying to save them, which kind of goes back to that whole narrative of we have to save these orchids from the wild almost, which a lot of people do say when they're talking about illegal trade and their participation in it. For legal and copyright reasons, we're not playing you clips of this video. But in it, the woman talks about how the seller sent her some extra freebie plants and how she'll be very happy if she can take care of them and they bloom. They look like they've been recently harvested, right? Yeah, you can often tell a wild orchid versus an artificially propagated one because they are often a bit shabbier, let's say. And yeah, you can often tell because the roots are are not uniform. They look like they've just been taken off a tree, basically. Patrick, I find this video just bizarre. I guess as a layperson, I had no idea that what she was talking about could be illegal goods. And also the orchids just don't look like anything that special to my untrained eye. And just generally, before you started looking into this, I didn't know that the illegal orchid trade was such a massive thing. 
let alone that there would be open discussions taking place on social media about wild orchids. And to be clear, we don't know whether anything in this video was the result of illegal activity, as we don't know whether the wild orchids were moved across international borders or what her local country's laws are around orchids. We contacted YouTube about this video and they sent us a link to their policy on the sale of illegal or regulated goods, which says it doesn't allow content that aims to directly sell, link to, or facilitate access to regulated goods on its list. Orchids without permits don't explicitly make the list, though endangered species do. What's the impact of removing orchids from the wild? I'm thinking about the impact on both the plant and the ecosystem. I had the same question, because we need to understand more about orchid ecology and their environment. So I called Nushka Reiter in Australia. She's a senior researcher at the Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, based in Melbourne, and she leads an orchid conservation programme. I asked her if orchids are difficult to keep alive once removed from the wild. Wild orchids are incredibly hard to um, keep alive. We grow orchids from seed in the lab I work in with their mycorrhizal fungi. We go out and isolate their mycorrhizal fungi from the wild. We culture the fungi in petri dishes in the lab and then we introduce the seed and the mycorrhizal fungi together, wrap them up and put them in the dark and then, like all good couples, in a few months then you end up with little baby orchids. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's very cute. But... The conditions which orchids need to be kept under are really specific and we're able to do this because we have dedicated facilities where the orchids can be cared for. But by and large, most orchids that if they were to be dug up from the wild would, would end up dead because they have specific requirements that wouldn't be met. Can the wild harvesting of orchids be done sustainably? Yeah, look, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. I think humans as a species have shown themselves fairly incapable of sustainable wild harvesting when it comes to, you know, fish or trees for paper or most things. Because for the idea of wild harvesting to work, you assume that there is a density-dependent response in these wild populations that simply by removing other plants, it's the competition of the other plants that are keeping these numbers of orchids in check. And, you know, by and large, that's not the case. Orchids, most of them are long-lived. They occur often in smallish populations and they don't have to replace themselves very often. Nushka says it can take around a decade for some orchids to reproduce because orchids need the correct pollinator to visit at the right times. And their seeds need to hit the ground where there is the correct moisture, the correct fungi, and all the right conditions line up at the same time. And there is still a lot we don't know about orchids. In some cases, orchids have been discovered by traffickers and harvested before scientists even knew they existed, meaning they haven't been researched or formally documented. I asked Nushka how that made her feel as a scientist. It doesn't surprise me, but it does make me sad to be losing them from the wild before we even know what they are or how they interact with the environment. 
is, I think, a sad loss for everyone. We've talked a lot about the decline of orchids around the world, but many people go to great lengths to protect them. And this was something I spoke to Mike about back at Kew. The one that you've probably heard about is our native ladies' slipper orchid. And in the 1920s, 1930s, that was on the verge of extinction in England. It never grew anywhere else in the UK, apart from northern England. Some years later, somebody found one plant on a lonely hillside in the north of England at a secret location. And that's the one that gets a lot of publicity, if you like, because everybody talks about it. And there was a myth went around about the fact that it was guarded by a policeman every season in the flowering season. This is the ultimate orchid comeback story. A lady slipper orchid thought extinct, only to be discovered years later. We tried to visit this site for the podcast, only to be turned down, maybe for good reason. There are strict rules about their no visitors policy, and they don't want to draw attention to it. We still don't know where the site is in England. Patrick, trafficking or illegally harvesting wild species can be so hard to track properly. And sometimes, to me, wildlife crime feels like this huge thing that's just too complex and sophisticated for us to do anything about. But what I think's great is that we've looked at examples of how you can tackle it with the right tools and determination. And these species are battling multiple threats. Just as we heard with the eels, orchids are depleting in numbers with habitat loss. And these threats compound. But I think the important thing to remember is that the popular image of wildlife crime is dominated by rhino horn and ivory. But the truth is that wildlife crime is all around us. You've been listening to the Age of Extinction takeover of Science Weekly. I'm Patrick Greenfield. I'm Phoebe Weston, and we're biodiversity and environment reporters for The Guardian. This episode was produced by Tiffany Cassidy. The executive producer was Max Sanderson, and the commissioning editor for Age of Extinction is Max Bonato. The Age of Extinction project is supported by the Ban Foundation, the Wiss Foundation, and the Oak Foundation. If you want to find out more about this content, head over to the podcast page at theguardian.com. We love getting your emails about podcasts, so keep them coming. If you have any thoughts, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line. The email is scienceweekly at theguardian.com. See you next time. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.